It's hard to believe, you know, my wife and I were talking right around Thanksgiving that Christmas is already here, and uh, now we're about five days away, and I guess some of us are on two extremes. There's one, there's one extreme of you that are thankful you got all your Christmas shopping done by basically going to Amazon.com and buying gift cards to give to everybody, amen? And uh, there's some of you that have done that, and then others who just like that, you like to still go to the store, and even though you've got to wear gloves and masks and whatever you do to stay, to stay safe at the store, you're probably still planning to go to the store, probably very last minute to get your deals, whatever it may be, we're all thinking about that. Some of us are very happy we've got that out the way, and some of us are just thinking, man, I, I just got to get this done before the week's over. And you know, you know that feeling, how it goes there. And so, you know, Christmas is all that. And, you know, that, that's the part of Christmas. I don't regret it. I, you know, I used to get all tense about it, but I don't regret it. I think that's the fun part of Christmas. I think it's just been great that we're just, you know, in spite of all the things going on, that people are going with their lives and trying to just say, you know, we're going to enjoy ourselves. But Christmas beyond the gifts and the cards and, and seeing how kids have grown and all these kind of things, Christmas beyond all, all that is about our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about the fact that Jesus Christ came into our world. We have to remind ourselves that the birth of Jesus Christ is what the Bible calls the fullness of time. It was at the right time. The Jews at that moment were feeling a sense like, has God forgotten us? Has God forsaken us? They were, they were under oppression by the, by the Roman Empire. And if you ever want a good study, you ought to read Gibbon's book, The Fall and Decline of the Roman Empire. Kind of gives you a little bit of history about Rome and what was going on with the Caesars and the oppressions and the taxing. And if you read it from a secular standpoint, Rome was a great, it did, did a lot of things that were great from a secular standpoint. The secularization of society, the, the paving of roads. I mean, when you read through the book of Acts and about the Apostle Paul as he traveled these different roads that he went to, many of those roads that were, enabled him to get from point A to point B were, were built by the Romans. And so we have to thank God. God uses that. God uses technology for his purposes. God uses engineering. God uses, you know, all the collective minds in these, in these ways. But uh, as we look at all these things, the Jews were just in their heart, were just saying, well, we have the scriptures and we have the prophecy, but where's the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, now we come to the book of, book of uh, Micah here and we see a prophecy. And we have to start back in the Old Testament at a prophecy and saying one of the prophecies that the Bible gives us concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice here in verse 2, it speaks about Bethlehem Ephrathah. Now, I don't know if you took notice this morning as we sang, O Come All Ye Faithful, but quite a few of our hymns reference the city of Bethlehem. In fact, the very first stanza talks about the city of Bethlehem. Now, we have a song we sing, a hymn we sing. I don't think we've sung it yet. Maybe it'll be tonight or whatever there. It's called, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And listen to the lyrics for just a moment. It says, O Little Town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are men in thee tonight. Then he goes to verse 2. He talks about the city. And if you're, you're reading the lyrics, you're kind of going, okay, where's he going with this? And then verse 2, as I'll read it, he announces the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. He talks about what we, what we refer to in, 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 in Christian circles, the incarnation. Now, incarnation talks about God, be, you know, it refers to God becoming a man. Uh, 1 Timothy 3.16 says, God was manifest in the flesh. John 1.14 says, the word, which is speaking about Jesus Christ. He's the living word. Before Jesus came in the Old Testament, it was the, he was the spoken word. But now he's the living word who walks among us. In John 1.14 it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, listen to what verse 2 of that, that hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, says. It says, For Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above. While mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wandering, of wandering love. O morning star, together proclaim the holy birth. 
and praises sing, let glory ring with peace to all the earth. That hymn, the first Noel, O come all ye faithful, hark the herald angels, all the different hymns that give reference about them, find their traces and roots beginning here in Micah chapter 5 verse 2. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 is one of many verses that prophesies so specifically about the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ and specifically the town in which Jesus would be born in. And so God starts off here in chapter 5. It's a prophetic chapter in Micah. Chapter 5, verse 1, speaks about our, our Savior who's smitten. That, that talks about that, that the judge of Israel is smitten on, on, on the cheek. He's, they take a rod and smite him on the cheek. But verse 2 brings us to his incarnation, to his actual first appearance, if you would, first appearance as the God-man into this world through the city of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is mentioned 51 times in the Bible. It is a significant city. I want you to see some things in this passage about Bethlehem and our Lord Jesus Christ. Number one, very simply, would you notice the place of Bethlehem? Notice the place of Bethlehem. He says, but thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, notice this, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah. Now, the first thing we see about Bethlehem he speaks about it being minute. He speaks about it being little. He says, though thou be little. The, 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 the area of Judah, the Judean landscape, was composed of many cities and small villages. It was huge. And basically, unless you were a Jew that traveled to and fro, even the Jews themselves may not have been familiar with all the different little towns that existed there unless they knew somebody that came out of that town. And one of those towns was a city called Bethlehem. Now, when you think about Bethlehem in terms of as we get to Micah chapter 5 and as we roll into the Gospels in, in, in Matthew chapter 1 and 2 and then we get to Luke chapter 1 and 2, you know, nobody really thought about Bethlehem. Bethlehem was very obscure. It was, it was kind of unknown city. It's kind of like for, for those of us up here, you know, we're, we're familiar with the, the San Francisco Bay Area. But if you start talking about city, small places down, you know, down in the Central Valley and places down perhaps off of Highway 110 somewhere down there or Highway 10 down, down there in, you know, like Temecula, place like that, unless you're from that area, you just really don't think about those cities. They, they don't mean anything. You know, the city of Indio down almost by, uh, down by San Diego, unless you live down there, you don't think about it. Or some, one of the smaller cities there in the Central Valley, if you drive Highway 5 to go down there, you know, you pass some small cities like Taft and places like that. Unless you live there, it doesn't mean anything to you. And unless you live in California, have reason to go there, it doesn't mean anything to you. And the same existed and applied here to the city of Bethlehem. Listen to this. Bethlehem geographically was 15 miles south of the city of Hebron. Hebron was known as the city of all the patriarchs. You know, uh, Abraham had roots there, and Isaac had roots there, and Jacob had roots there. Uh, uh, Bethlehem was 10 miles to the northwest. 10 miles to the northwest of that was the city of Gibeon. City, the city of Gibeon is famous in the Bible because that's the place where Joshua was fighting the five kings, and he prayed for God to hold the sun still for one entire day. You find that in Joshua chapter 10. Uh, 12 miles to the west was the city of Shoko. I was just reading my devotion this morning, through, uh, this week through 1 Samuel. Shoko was the area where Israel gathered on one side and the Philistines on the other. There's a valley between them called uh, there. And that's where David met with Goliath. It's the, that valley of Shoko where, where the Philistines and the Israelites met. Uh, then if you would, maybe 42 miles to the east was the, there was the city of Joppa, the place where Jonah fled to when he ran from the Lord. And then interestingly... Five miles to the north of Bethlehem 
was the city of Jerusalem. Now, if you and I had a had kind of a trivia time and we were to ask this question, name the most famous cities you can think of the Bible, for a lot of us, probably the first city that would come to your mind would be Jerusalem because we preach about Jerusalem. We talk about Jerusalem. Jerusalem's all over in the Bible. The city of Jerusalem is mentioned in Genesis. It means the city of peace. And so we, we, we would think of Jerusalem. Five miles away from Bethlehem was Jerusalem. We'd think about that. But nobody thought about Bethlehem. Bethlehem, even described here in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, he speaks about it. He says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little. Now, I don't want to discount anything, but there were there's some noteworthy things, some touching things that are surrounding the city of Bethlehem. Now, give me some background here before I get to where I want to go. First of all, what you notice, the first mention of Bethlehem is found in Genesis, I think Genesis uh, 35 or so. We find Jacob with his family, and he's with his wife, Rachel. Rachel becomes very deathly sick, and she dies. She passes away. Now, she, now, he loved her with all his heart. And we're told that he buried her at the city of Bethlehem, Ephrata. Now, Ephrata means the same as Bethlehem. They're used interchangeably. Bethlehem, Ephrata. Ephrata, Bethlehem. It's kind of like when you speak about Alameda and Alameda County. You know, Alameda is a city of Alameda County. Ephrata meant the same as Bethlehem. meant the same thing there. And so he, the first mention of, of Bethlehem is the burial place of Rachel. We go down a little bit further into the Bible, and we get to the book of Ruth. Now, if you haven't read the book of Ruth, you ought to read the book of Ruth. It's a great love story, great pictures there that illustrate to us the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the very first mention we have there is about a man by the name of Elimelech who married a woman by the name of Naomi. They lived in Bethlehem, and there was a famine in the land, and they decided, Elimelech, for whatever reason, hey, you know, it's bad economy, I need, a, I need, some, I need to get put food on the table, things like that. So he leaves Bethlehem, and the Bible says he goes down to Moab. Now, Moab, the Jews were not to have any dealings with the Moabites because they were their enemies. And he just thought, you know, we heard that there's jobs there and there's food there. So he moves his family down to Moab. Bad decision. Elimelech dies there. And then while he, after his death, his two sons marry. They're down there with the, their mother, Naomi. His two sons marry. His two sons die there. And Naomi's all of a sudden hit with this awful nightmare. She's realizing, you know what? We should have never left Bethlehem. We should have stayed there. She said, my husband's died here. My sons have died here. And as a widow in those days, that was a bad thing to be because there were no social programs. Because if your husband died, they, it was expected that your sons would take care of you. And if your sons weren't around, then the two, the two conditions you didn't want to be in at that time was to be an orphan and to be, to be a widow because basically you were on your own. There were no social programs and you were probably at the bottom of the food chain as far as anybody caring for you and so Naomi's bereft she's brokenhearted she's these two daughter-in-law she's burned about and she hears this message she heard that the Lord had visited his people with bread that's what it says in Ruth chapter 1 that the Lord had visited his people with bread and so she says you know what that just reminds me I should have never left Bethlehem so she makes her way her way back to Bethlehem she describes her condition I left Bethlehem full but now I'm returning back empty the word the name Naomi means pleasant. It means uh, cheerful and pleasant. But she said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. She went back with bitterness of soul because she came back as a widow. She came back without her son. She had two daughter-in-laws. One decided to stay in Moab. But one went back with her. Her name was Ruth. Now, Ruth was a Moabite. And if you read your Bible in the book of Deuteronomy, it tells us that no Moabite was allowed to enter the congregation of Israel for up to the 10th generation. Now, it wasn't that God, didn't, that God hated the Moabites. God wanted Moabites to get saved. And by the way, Ruth was a Moabite that got saved. Praise God for that. But because of the, some things that they did against Israel, God said, you know what, I just can't have you, I just can't have you come into their congregation. Well, she knew about that. Naomi told her about that. But she said, we're going back to Bethlehem. And there at Bethlehem, she had a, uh, Naomi, through her husband, had a kinsman by the name of Boaz. Now, Boaz is a wonderful story. Boaz is a wonderful person. Boaz is a type 
if you would, a symbol of our Lord Jesus Christ. Boaz is described as a mighty man of wealth. Well, when Naomi and Ruth are there, they've got, to, they've got to find a way to get some money, and they've got to find a way to get some food. And so Naomi knew the tradition there. She said, well, listen. She said, Naomi, let me go to the fields, and I'll, I'll, follow, the glee, I'll, I'll follow the men who are harvesting, because it was wheat harvest at that time. She said, I'll just follow behind them. And that's what they did. If, you, if it wasn't your field, if you were very poor, you'd follow behind. And whatever dropped behind, whatever fault that they didn't pick up, you would pick it up. And, uh, and, and then we call that gleaning. They would just pick up the gleanings there. And so she went there, and she was the hardest working person. Here's this young, very beautiful looking, very clean looking young lady that just is following these men as they're leaving things, and they're probably making fun of her because she's a gleaner. They know, and they know just from the fact that she's a gleaner that she's uh, that she's in poverty, and most likely there may be a widowhood involved and things like that. But she's working the hardest. Anywhere she sees anything on the floor, on the ground, she's picking it up, she's gathering it to things. And so Boaz comes out, and the people love Boaz, and, P- and Boaz loved the people, and they greeted him and he greeted them and he started he saw this woman that's working very very diligently in the field he says who is that woman and he told him it was Ru- it was it was ruth and so he took an interest in ruth long story short god brings ruth and boaz together boaz had to it was the nearest kinsman to their family he bought the the uh, uh the, well there was a nearest kinsman who didn't want to buy the field of elimelech and her and and, and her and, and his sons and so boaz was next in line boaz bought it but he also asked ruth for her hand in marriage well boaz and ruth get married this is down in bethlehem this is a wonderful love story well they have they have children they have a son by the name of obed obed goes grows up obed has a son by the name of jesse jesse grows up jesse has a son is the very is his youngest son of his clan he had eight sons uh, the youngest son his name was david Bethlehem was the city of David. Bethlehem was the city that God sent the prophet Samuel to with a horn of oil. He said, you're going to anoint the next king of Israel there. So David comes down there. He goes through seven of of, of uh, Jesse's sons. None of them are what God wants. And so he knew there was somebody missing. He asked the question, are all your sons here? He said, well, yeah, there's just the youngest one. And, you know, he's kind of the, he's kind of the, you know, the one we forget about. And he's doing all the dirty work. And he's up there in the hills of Bethlehem taking care of the sheep. Because you have to remember, sheep herding was hard work. And it was dirty work. And it was, it was, the, it was the hardest job to have because you'd have to stay there all night watching the sheep. And you'd be in the elements and the cold and so forth there. And so he was kind of, if you would, he was kind of the, the, the child that nobody thought about. He was the youngest one, but he was, he was the, the one that was the hardest working. And so Jesse said, yes, I have the youngest one up there. And, the, and David came down, and the Bible describes him as being uh, ruddy in, in features. And basically it means he was kind of, he had red hair perhaps, and, and his, his face was very, very colorful, probably for being in the sun all that time. And uh, Samuel comes to him and pours oil on his head and anoints him to be the next king of Israel. Well, we, we have these touching incidents. We read about Bethlehem. All we do is stop there. Man, we read about Ruth, and we read about Naomi, we read about David, we read about Jacob and Rachel. I mean, Bethlehem was a place that had some touching incidents. But the Bible doesn't tell us, don't want us doesn't want us to focus on those incidents, even though they're there for this passage. Notice in verse 2, it says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little. They say, now I've read, I've read different things about this, but they think, they believe, William, uh, uh, one, of, one of the archaeologists that did a lot of excavations down there, believes that the city of Bethlehem may not have been more than 300 to 500 total residents in population there. If you can imagine, not more than 300 to 500 total residents at that time, even at the time of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was a farming community. That's all it was known for. It's farming and it was a sheep herding uh, uh, community. So there were herds 
flocks and farming. That's all it was known for. And lots of the sheep, sheep herding would be done in the Judean hillside there, the Bethlehem hillside, which was very famous for. The Bible speaks about Bethlehem being little. It was insignificant. It was a small city. It was little in size, little in stature, and little in its citizens. The Bible says, but thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands. You know something this morning? Here's a thought I want to give you. God uses the little. God uses little things. We may think we have little resources. We may think that we have little power. We may think that we have little influence. We may be think that we are little in speech. We may be think we're little in intelligence. We may be thinking we're little in our talents. But I want to tell you this morning, during as we get ready for Christmas, God uses the little. I want you to think of me for just a minute. God used a little maid in the book of Second Kings. This little maid, we don't know her name. She was taken captive by the Syrians. Uh, uh, she was an Israeli. She was a Jewish maid, a little servant girl, maybe not more than 17, 18 years of age. She was taken as a captive down to the household of a captain of Syria by the name of Naaman. Naaman was a great captain. The Bible tells him he was a great man of war. But the Bible says that he was a leper. And she watched him as he was deteriorating from his diseased leprosy. And they knew a time would come. He would have to be isolated off from the rest of his family because nobody else wanted to catch the leprosy. And she looked at him with pity. She made this prayer. She said, Oh, that thou wouldest come to know the prophet which is in Israel. And she just, she made that statement and she was praying. And, and Naaman's wife heard her pray that. And she said, who is this prophet? Can he help my husband? She said, yes, this prophet is a man of God. He can help your husband. And this man Naaman, by, the, by listening to the word, the witness, and the encouragement of this little servant, went to see Elisha. And God, God used Elisha to tell him to go to the river Jordan, where there God would heal him of his leprosy. The Bible says, in fact, after he dipped himself seven times under the water, that seventh time his skin was like the skin of a little baby. God used a little maid to help a man get cured of leprosy. God used a little maid to help that man come to know the Lord as a Savior. Can I tell you this morning, God can use anybody to lead somebody to Christ. God can use all of our personalities. God can use our, our speech impediments and our language impediments and our mind impediments and whatever we feel that we don't have. God can use you and God can use me to bring people to Jesus. Remember the story there about Jesus being in the wilderness there and these crowds came and he preached to these thousands of people. It was nearing, it was nearing the end of the day and he said, hey, go look out and see. And he told his disciples, go see if there's any food there. And they looked around. They said, Lord, they've been here all day. It's going to be night here. There's no stores here. There's no 7-Elevens. There's nothing out here. Lord, go send them home. He said, send them away. They can get their own food. You know, they said, send them away. We don't want to be dealing with them. I mean, the disciples were tired. They had been on the sea the night before with Jesus. Now they got over there. They were tired. They were just all day ministering. And Jesus said, well, go see how many loaves you can find. Well, Andrew was out there looking. He found a little boy, a little lad, a little lad who brought his lunch basket. I called the happy meal of that day. Amen. He had five little loaves. And when we think about loaves, your mind and my mind of a loaf thinks about, we think about a loaf of bread in Western, Western terminology. A loaf didn't mean that in those days. Five little loaves meant five little Five little, basically, barley loaves. They probably weren't more than about this big. I mean, they were morsel size. They were barley loaves. They were like barley crackers you'd put in your, your clam chowder. They are barley loaves and two little anchovy fishes that they got out of the Sea of Galilee. I mean, basically, his mother packed a little snack for him and says, Take with you. You might get hungry along the way. Wise mother. She knows that growing boys get hungry. Amen? So she packed a little lunch for him. And Andrew finds him. And he says, Hey, son, 
uh, do you mind? Jesus needs some food. He says, sure, Jesus can have it. And Andrew brought the little boy there to him, and he presented his meal to Jesus. God used that little lad and his little loaves and little fishes. Jesus blessed it. And you know the story there. He multiplied it, and 5,000 men plus women and children were fed sufficiently, more than sufficient, because they took them 12 baskets about this size. They took a ba- 12 baskets of the leftovers to demonstrate the power of God. My friend, this morning, God uses little things. He looked at the city of Bethlehem, Judah, and Bethlehem, Ephrata, and he says, though thou be little among the thousands, yet out of thee shall he come forth. God uses little things. God uses little power. God uses little people. No matter who we are, no matter how insignificant we may be, no matter what you may think about yourself, I want to encourage you this morning. God uses the little. It doesn't, you say, well, I'm just a little kid. God uses the little. You say, well, pastor, I don't have great influence. God uses the little. If you just made that one phone call, if you just made that one word of encouragement, if you just, just said, well, listen, I don't have much money. Listen, God took a little widow. She put two two mites they call them two mites they're like equivalent to basically two pennies less than two pennies into an offering and uh, was the least amount of money went in it but she gave all that she had that's all she had she gave it to the lord and it became if you would a great a great object lesson for sermons on giving we find it right there in the book of luke in the book of matthew there where it talks about that god uses the little oh as we get ready for 2021 i want to encourage you don't say i'm nobody don't say i'm too little don't say i can't speak don't say i can't think don't don't say I don't have any resources. God uses the little. Bethlehem, we, it was minute. But notice Bethlehem and its meaning. The name Bethlehem, you might want to write this down. The name Bethlehem means the house of bread. That's what it means. Bethlehem Judah means the house of bread and praise of God. The house of bread and praise. It's the house of bread. It speaks about the fact that God provides for us. It's talked about the very place of provision. Bread is a staple of life. Bread is satisfied to a hungry person. The house of bread speaks about Jesus Christ, who's the bread of life. And the Bible says this in John chapter 7, verse 48. Jesus said, I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. Listen, the house of bread, Bethlehem itself, speaks to us about the fact that God satisfies and God sustains, that God meets our need. The house of bread is heaven itself. It's the fact that from heaven, all good gifts, and every perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there's no variableness, neither shadow of turning. When we think about heaven, I think about the invitation God gives us and is the seed for our theme for next year, where he says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may attain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know what God's telling you and I? The throne of grace is where the house of bread is. It's a place you can go over and over and over again to pray down God's blessing, to pray down God's provision. You say, Pastor, I'm in need of a job. Well, listen, but heaven's the house of bread. You can pray for a job. You say, Pastor, I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. Heaven's the house of bread. You can pray for God to meet your need because the Bible says, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You say, Pastor, I'm living a lonely life and I feel just so lonely and so apart. I feel rejected and all that. I understand that. But there's the house of bread where God is the chief bread manufacturer and God provides over and over again and he can satisfy your soul. He can fill up that loneliness with his love. You say, Pastor, I'm in a dark place in my life. I understand that. But there's a house of bread that you can go to where God can meet your need. Listen, that house of bread 
It speaks to me about the fact God is there to satisfy and sustain us. The house of bread speaks about the church of the living God. It speaks about the place we come to church to worship God. We come to church to give our praise to the Lord. And we come to church to give our offerings to the Lord. But listen, we come to church also, like right now, where God can feed us the bread of life through the word of God. It's like the manna that came down from heaven for the Jews in the wilderness. Every morning from, from Monday through, through, uh, from Sunday to, to Friday, God took care of their need. They had manna provided for them. And they would go out in the morning and some would gather little some would gather much but they said that everybody gathered whatever they needed there and god provides their need listen the lord the lord jesus christ taught us to pray this he said our father which art in heaven hallowed be thy name that will be done on earth as it is in heaven listen to this give us this day our daily bread the house of bread god wants to put bread in your soul the bread in your soul is jesus christ God wants to sustain us. Bethlehem itself spoke about this place, about a house of bread. No wonder Naomi would say that, the, that she would read and hear that the Lord had visited his people with bread. You know what we need this morning? We need the bread of life in our lives. We need the bread of life, Jesus Christ. We need the sustenance that God gives. We see Bethlehem, the place. Notice verse 2 again. Secondly, notice Bethlehem and a person. Notice what it says, but thou Bethlehem Ephratah. Though thou be little among the thousands, listen to this, yet out of thee shall he come forth that shall be ruler in Israel. Who's the he? The he is our Lord Jesus Christ. It speaks about this person. It's giving a prophecy about the birth of our Lord. Out of thee shall he come forth. Notice, number one, he is the sinless son. He, Jesus Christ, is the sinless Son. Now let's go back to the New Testament and walk, walk our way through this. I want you to consider with me, first of all, the what of Bethlehem. In Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 37, we have this story there of how the angel Gabriel came and made an announcement to Mary. Now, Mary lived in the city called Nazareth. I want you to park that in your mind. Mary lived in Nazareth. Joseph lived in Nazareth. Joseph and Mary were betrothed to be married. Now, a betrothal basically was like our engagement period, but a little bit more, uh, more contractual than that. A betrothal period basically meant that they, were, they basically had all the responsibilities of marriage, except for the fact they were not to live together. Betrothal was a time the man was to get a house ready for them, and at the end of that betrothal period, he would come and get her and bring her and have an entourage that would go to the house that he's prepared for her, okay? Well, they were, they were engaged to be married. They had pledged themselves to each other, and, and, and it was just equivalent to the covenant of marriage. And so during that time, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary first in Nazareth and announces to her that she would, she would conceive and bring forth the son. Well, that blew her mind because what the angel was talking about there is that you're going to have a baby, but you're not going to have a human father. Now, we know this. In order biologically and humanly for birth to occur, there must be a human father, there must be a human mother. Okay? There's, no, there's never been such a thing as a woman conceiving without a father. There has to be a father involved. And so what the angel was telling her, number one, was impossible. Number two, it would also be somewhat scandalous if it was found out that she was with the child and she and Joseph were not together. But God was in this matter. And so the angel Gabriel, by the way, his name means the man of God. That's what Gabriel means, the man of God, that he makes this announcement that she's going to conceive and bring forth the son. But he didn't leave the mystery there. He said, listen, that son, he shall be called the son of the highest. 
Nazareth. And he's basically telling Mary that what God would do in her life, that she would bring forth the Messiah, that she would be the vessel that God would use to bring Jesus in this world. Well, you can imagine, if you're a 16-year-old kid, getting a, a young lady getting that kind of announcement, I mean, that's mind-blowing. That's mind-blowing to anybody. That's not just mind-blowing. It's just like she's just trying to get her head wrapped around this, first of all, uh, about, about the Messiah, being the, that she would be the one that would bring the Messiah into the world. But number two, how can a virgin birth happen? Well, she asked this question. She said, how can this be? How can this be? How, she said, how should this be, seeing I know not a man? And here's what the angel said. The angel said in Luke 135, And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Now let me stop there and say this. She wanted to know how can a birth occur to a virgin woman without a human father. And this is because that's impossible. There's no way a woman can become pregnant without a father. It's impossible. It's humanly impossible. It's biological. It never happened before that. It's never happened since that. It's the only one of its kind. And she said, how can this be? And the angel answered her from the word of God. He says, he says the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall be on thee. He said, God is the only one who can make it happen. God's going to touch your body, and he's going he's to enable Jesus to come to be incubated in your body for nine months, and then you'll bring him forth. Jesus would come to this world through a natural birth, but his conception would be supernatural. You see, he's talking to her about the, about the miracle of the virgin birth. The miracle of the virgin birth. Now, she was given this announcement there in Nazareth. We see the what. Now, let's go a little bit further. Notice the why. She was told about the virgin birth because a virgin birth was essential and necessary. In fact, it was absolutely essential and necessary in order for Jesus to enter this world with a sinless life and a sinless nature. When you have a human father and a human mother together, two sinners coming together, they produce a sinful child. Now, all of us had parents and grandparents and ancestors who all had sinned. The Bible says, by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. So then death is passed upon all men for all have sinned, Romans 5.12. And so all of us are descendants of sin. But in Jesus' case, there was no human father because had there been a human father, he could not be the son of God. He would have entered this world with a sinful nature, but Jesus entered this world with a sinless nature. The virgin birth is an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. The virgin birth, birth points to the, to, the, to the sinless life of Christ. That's why when we get to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says this. It says this, speaking about the incarnation, the virgin birth, without controversy. Now, you can argue all you want, but when you get back to the nuts and bolts of Scripture, it's without controversy. Without controversy, he says, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, what does that mean? He says, it's a mystery about how God came into this world. He says, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, it was unknown. People probably really didn't grasp the whole idea of that because Isaiah 7:14 prophesied that a virgin would, bring, would, would conceive and bring forth a son, and his name would be Emmanuel, and that's in Isaiah 7:14. And so the virgin birth had been prophesied in the book of Isaiah there, but now they're getting their minds wrapped around this thing because Mary now, in the, now in the, as has been told by the angel Gabriel that she would be the vessel for this virgin birth. The Bible says, without controversy, greatest the mystery of godliness, God was manifest in the flesh. 
Listen, a virgin birth is absolutely necessary to have a sinless Savior. If Jesus, if Jesus was not a sinless Savior, He could not die for your sins and mine and satisfy all of God's demand. Jesus was, is holy because He's always been. That's why it says his, his goings forth have been of old, even from everlasting. Jesus has no beginning. He has no end. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's everlasting. Now, I know of a prominent theologian. I told you his name. A good number of you know him. A prominent theologian, and he's still alive today, and pastor, preacher. He's up in years. He believed at one time that Jesus, his eternality, that Jesus became eternal at the incarnation. My friend, that is not biblical. Jesus has always been eternal. He always is, always was, and always will be. He didn't become eternal at the time, of his, at the time he entered this world. He's always been eternal. Now, thankfully, that theologian, that, that minister, uh, recanted from that saying and reversed his position. But I want to tell you, the Bible is very clear that Jesus has been of old from everlasting. And so Christ was, was sinless in eternity. Christ was sinless when he came in this world. That's essential. If Jesus Christ was a sinner dying for our sins, he could not atone for our sins. But Jesus, being the sinless Son of God, could atone and pay in full your sins and mine because he was the sinless Son of God. Now that takes us to the where. We've seen the what. Get Mary gets the announcement. We get the why, that it was because the virgin birth was essential for a sinless Savior. Notice we get the where. Write this down. Luke chapter 2, verses 4 to 5. Luke chapter 2, now we find Mary and Joseph. Mary's with child. The angel's gone to Joseph. Both of them are at peace with the fact that God's will will be done through all this. They're living in Nazareth. Remember this, they're in Nazareth. Nazareth is, is 90 miles north of Bethlehem. Nazareth was a, was a city to the west of the Sea of Galilee. It was probably about 10 miles to the west of the Sea of Galilee. So it was part of the seaside community of Nazareth there, okay? And so they're 90 miles away. And I'm not talking like from, from a straight shot from, from San Leandro to Sacramento. I'm talking about through rugged landscape. I'm talking about no highways. I'm talking about very difficult. And to make matters even more complicated and the plot thicker, Mary is in her last trimester. In fact, she's in her final days before she's supposed to give birth. Now, some people estimated it probably took about four to seven days, depending on the people and how fast they travel. It would take four to seven days of continuous travel, which is stopping through the night, to travel from Nazareth to Jerusalem. Now, you can imagine, ladies, you can empathize with this. Can you imagine as describes Mary? She's great with child. Great with child means she's about to give birth at any time. I mean, she's uncomfortable. And she can't sit. It's hard for her to sit. She can't walk. I mean, it's all the different things that go with those last days of the pregnancy. It's kind of like where a woman feels like, I just want to get it over. I want to give the birth. I want to have the baby come. You know, She felt the same way. I mean, she's at this place. But here, here's what happens. They're in Nazareth thinking they're going to give birth up there. Caesar Augustus gives this decree within the month before she's supposed to be born. And the decree says he wanted to take a census. Now, the Bible calls it a taxing, but basically he wanted to take a census for the purpose of taxing, and every person had to go to the city of their ancestors. Well, David is a descendant of, uh, excuse me, Joseph was a descendant of King David. And so because he could trace his lineage back to David, he had to go to the city of Bethlehem. Now, this was a mandate. It was a requirement. If you didn't do this, you'd go to jail or worse. You had to follow through with the edict of the Roman Empire. And so this edict comes out. Everybody is kind of like, like in China. When China's New Year's comes in China, people leave whatever city they're going to. And there's this mass, there's this mass migration of people all over that country to their homeland, their, 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 the city they were born in. I mean, it's crazy. 
frenzied when they, the way it's described to me. You could have, you could have somewhere to, they said up to 750 million people migrating throughout. They're going to their hometown where their, their ancestors were from. Well, the thing, same thing was happening there in, in the whole Judean area. Jews were going to the place where they were born. And, for, and because Joseph and Mary were of the tribe of Judah, they had to find their place back down to Bethlehem. Well, God led them there. God led them there. And while they were there, the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 2, Mary would give birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what the Bible says there. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so they go there, they go through the census, they're trying to find a place, and this is another sermon, another time, but they couldn't find a place to live in. So she's about to give birth, so the only place she could go to give birth was a cave stall. Now, this cave stall basically was a place where they would park animals at night to keep them out of the element. And basically, it was, just, it was, it was a place where animals were sheltered. And they basically, they had troughs there filled with hay. And basically, the animals would eat out of there or drink out of there. And there in that cave stall with animals, Mary gave birth to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You can imagine that. Now, listen to what the Bible says there. We go down another two verses. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. Mary said, Joseph, we're not going to be able to make this trip back to Nazareth. I'm going to have to have the baby here. Now, I'm not sure in their minds that the prophecy of Micah 5.2 came to their mind. I have to think it did because they were, I think they were very in tune with what the Lord was telling them. But they, she just knew there's no way we're going to make this trip back up to Nazareth. We're going to have to stay here to give birth to the baby. We're going to have to stay here that her day should be accomplished. And the Bible says in verse 7, Luke chapter 2, verse 7, And she brought forth her firstborn son, and that's important because she never had any children before that, which means she never had a relationship with Joseph or any other man. It says that she brought forth her firstborn son. Now, that's very significant. The Bible, God uses choice words in every verse of Scripture to help us understand understand the integrity of his word and the integrity of God there. And she says, it says, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Now watch this. We see the what. We see the why. We see the where. God leads them to Bethlehem, to where the babe would be born. That brings us back to Micah 5, 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands, yet out of he shall he come forth. Now we look at that. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It fulfilled Isaiah 7, 14, that a virgin would conceive and bear a son, and his name, Emmanuel, means God with us. Christ would be born in Bethlehem. God is now physically among the human, among human flesh with us. He came to this world very obscurely. I mean, aside from Joseph and Mary, nobody in Bethlehem gave any idea that the Son of God came into this world. Nobody had this idea that God was manifest in flesh, but it was there. It happened there, and God makes significance of this. Scripture was fulfilled. Isaiah 9, 6 was fulfilled. It says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Christ was born. In deity, Christ came. 100% God, 100% man. I want you to understand something. That little, that little baby that was, was inside of Mary's womb was always God. He was always God as power, always God as creator, always God in control. He was always God. When he came into this world as a crying little baby, and she held him in her arms, and she brought him to her chest, she recognized this was the Son of God. Yes, this was a baby in size and a baby that needed nurturing and a baby was crying. But that was eternal 
powerful Son of God in their midst there. What great faith Mary and Joseph had that that baby was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus came into this world by way of a natural birth, but by way of the fact it was a virgin birth. It's a sinless life so that he could die for your sins and mine. The purpose Jesus came to this world was to be your, sin, your Savior and mine. The house of bread, Bethlehem, became the place where the bread of life came forth. We see the sinless son, but quickly notice we see the smitten Savior. Now let's go look at the life of Jesus Christ. You go to Micah 5.1. The second part of five, chapter 5, verse 1 says, And they shall smite the judge of Israel with the rod upon the cheek. Jesus lives in obscurity. He's hidden from man for 30 years. He's there in Nazareth. He grows up in Nazareth there. And at his 30th year, the, the, the time of, of a man coming forth and, and proclaiming his ministry, he comes forth and proclaims his ministry. And in three short years, he does his ministry throughout that whole entire Judean landscape and that Galilean area there. And there, Jesus, in, his, in that 33rd year of his life, would give his life as a sacrifice for the sins of everyone. The Bible speaks about the fact that Jesus would come forth out of Bethlehem. But the Bible also speaks about Micah 5.1, that the judge of Israel would be smitten. My friend, this morning, we must now go from the birth to understanding the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus was born that he might die for your sins and mine. Hebrews 2.9 explains it very, very much, very, very colorfully this way. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Now, it didn't mean that Jesus was lower in significance to the angels. When he came to this world, he came as a servant to die for our sins. That's what it means. He was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. God did not send an angel to die for your sins. God did not send, raise up a preacher to die for his sins. God did not raise up a Jewish high priest to die for his sins. Why? Because all of those, those men in themselves could not satisfy God's demands in paying the price for our sins. Angels would not meet the requirement. It would have to be God himself. God sent his own son, Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Listen to this. We see it says, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Here's what I want you to know. Jesus Christ came in the world. He is God wrapped up in love to you and I. The Bible says, but God commendeth or proved his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He was smitten, he was beaten, he was wounded. He was crucified. He shed his blood on the cross. He died on the cross for every sinner. You see, my friend, this morning, the Christmas gift is not just that Jesus came in the world. The Christmas gift God gives to you and I is the free gift of eternal life. Salvation, which is forever. Salvation, which is eternal. It is not temporary. It is forever. Once you receive Jesus Christ as Savior, you're saved forever and forever and forever. It is God's wonderful gift. He says, he says that, and to as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Jesus died for your sins and mine. All of our sin debt, everything that we should pay for, everything that we should be punished for, for sin. He took it on his life. He took it on himself. He endured all that for you and I with joy. He suffered for you and I so that our sins could be paid in full. 
Jesus is the smitten Savior. He died for you and I. He took the beatings. He took the humiliation. He took the scoffing. He took all the rebuking. He took all the terrible, wicked things they said about him. He took the spitting. He took the punishment and the pain. He endured all that for you and I so that you and I could be saved. You know, we ought to thank God today as we go into the Christmas season. Jesus Christ became the ransom for your sins and mine. Jesus Christ became the propitiation for our sins. He paid in full the ransom price for sin so that you can be saved and you can go to heaven. The greatest thing you can... you can, you can grasp this morning the fact Jesus came in this world, the prophecy of Bethlehem. Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, the house of bread, and he would be the bread of life who would give his life. And he says, if you take me as the bread of life, you shall never die. He offers you the gift of eternal life through his death by believing on the fact that he died for your sins and by his resurrection that he rose again from the dead. He is your smitten Savior who wants you to be saved today. We see Bethlehem the place. We see Bethlehem, the person, but as we close this morning, notice the last part of verse, verse 2. We see Bethlehem and its potentate. Would you notice how it closes there? But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel. Now we know that Jesus Christ is a descendant of David. David was the great king of Israel. He's called, he was called the king of the Jews. But he's more than the king of the Jews. He's the king of the universe. The Bible says he's the blessed and only potentate, only God. He's the blessed and only potentate. Now at that time there was King Caesar and there was King Herod who dubbed himself the king of the Jews. That's why he was so angry when the Magi, the wise men, came from, from up the Persian area and said, we're looking for him who's the king of the Jews. In fact, their question is, where is he that is born the king of the Jews? Those wise men had so much faith from reading Micah 5. In fact, if you read uh, Matthew chapter 2, that is quoted from Ma- Micah 5, it's quoted there. They had so much faith in that, their question, they were just overwhelmed with the fact when they got to the city of Jerusalem, they said, is he here? Where is he that is born the king of the Jews? They said, we know that he's been born. We've come to worship him. They said, we've studied the charts and we studied the stars and the star has led us thus far. And that's the star of Jacob that we read about over in Numbers chapter 24 that was leading them. In fact, you go over to Isaiah, and I think it's Isaiah 62 or 64. It talks about it, prophesies about these wise men there. And he says here in Micah 5, 2, out of these shall he come forth and shall be ruler in Israel. My friend, this morning, Jesus Christ was only born to be your Savior. He came to this world and he sent it up to heaven. And when he sent it to heaven, he resumed his place where he was at before he came from heaven. He went to the right hand of the throne of God. And there he sits as our King of kings and Lord of lords. Now that becomes kind of a part of our, our terminology we use in, in our circles here as Christians. But I want you to understand what the Bible meant by that. When it was first written, he is the king over all kings. He is the Lord over all lords. There is no king like Jesus. He's king eternal. He's king almighty. He's king creator. He's king savior. He's king powerful. He's king all-knowing. He's king everywhere at all times. He's king that loves. He's king that's merciful. He's also king that judges. The Bible says he's the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings and Lord of lords. Listen to what the Bible says there. Which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings and Lord of lords, who only has immortality, 
dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, and whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Those are the words written by the Apostle Paul, giving acknowledgement and worship to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is only God. Jesus is only Savior. Jesus is the only bread of life. Jesus is the only water of life. Jesus is the only resurrection and the life. Jesus is the only King and the only potentate. When he was born, the angels appeared, and as the angels appeared, they sang, and they, they sang to the to the shepherds which were, on the, which were on the Bethlehem hillside, the same place where David shepherded. They were singing, and the shepherds were, 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 were scared and fearful. Why are we seeing these angels? But the angels were singing, Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth, goodwill to men. The shepherds came, and they bowed and gave glory to God. We read later on, just a few months after that, that these wise men were studying the charts and studying the, they were studying the scriptures and they were studying the stars and they realized that the Messiah had been born. And I want you to understand, these were Gentiles. These were not Jewish men. These were Gentile men, most likely Persian men that, that, that came from the north. They, from the northeast, they read about this and they made this trek. And the Bible says they came looking for, for Jesus. And the star led them. And the star led them specifically to the city of Bethlehem, to the lodging place, wherever that was at that time, where the Bible says Mary and the young child and Joseph were. And when these men came after a long journey and they were exhausted and tired, they came prepared to worship. They came prepared to present their best and the best that they had for Jesus. And they gave the best gifts. They gave gifts for a king, gold and frankincense and myrrh. They gave gifts to symbolize their belief in his deity, that he was the son of God. They gave gifts to represent their faith in his death and his resurrection for them. They gave gifts to represent their faith in the fact that he's the king of kings and Lord of Lords. You know what that talks to me about as we read about this? Thank God for the virgin birth, which we need to exalt and we want to make high. It's an essential doctrine of scripture. And thank God this morning that Jesus Christ died for our sins and he rose again from the dead and he offers eternal life to everyone who believes in him. But listen, as we thank him for being savior and we thank him for being born, let's thank him this morning that he's the king of kings and the Lord of Lords. He's the blessed and only potentate. And just as we sang just a moment ago, all of earth and all of God's people should come and say, oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us worship him. Let us worship our Lord. Let us not come with our hands empty and our hearts empty. Let us come with our hearts filled with the fact we're thankful that we're saved. We're thankful that Jesus is in our heart. We're thankful we're going to heaven. And let's come with our, our version of the gold and frankincense and myrrh. And let's come and worship and adore him. Let's make sure it's surrounding as we open the presents and we thank our moms and dads and our siblings and others for the gifts. Let's make sure we thank God for the perfect gift. Because the Bible says in Second Corinthians, this time. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. That unspeakable gift is Jesus Christ our Lord. Would you come with me and adore him? Would you come with me and worship him? Would you come with me to say thank you Jesus for dying for us? Thank you Jesus for being born. Thank you Jesus for the virgin birth. Thank you Jesus for Micah 5 2. Thank you Jesus for Bethlehem. The house of bread brought forth the bread of life. Let's come and let us adore him. Amen. He's the king of kings. He's the blessed and only potentate. Out of thee shall he come forth to be ruler in Israel. Israel's looking for their king. He's here. He's here. Whose goings forth from everlasting of old. He never abandoned his holiness. He put on the garments of a servant when he was here on earth to serve us. He had to die for your sins and mine. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. You might be saved.
Are you saved this morning? Do you recognize the significance of the Christian story? Is it the bread of life? Offers you eternal life? Would you call on him this morning to save you? To be your savior? To wash away your sins? Make this the best, most important Christmas you've ever had? Because taking Jesus Christ, your Savior, is the best and most important Christmas you've ever had. I love this time of the year, especially for church. I've kept a record since I've been pastor of the church, since 2004. I've kept a record of people who have trusted Christ as Savior. I've got a record of hundreds of people that have trusted Christ around the Christmas season at one of our Christmas musicals, a witnessing event. If you've never gotten saved, this is the day to be saved. This is the time to accept Jesus Christ, your Savior. Out of these shall he came forth. He came for you. He came unselfishly. He came willingly. And today for every believer, he's the blessed and only potentate who only has immortality and dwells in the light. Let's draw close to the Lord this Christmas. Come to him to be your Savior today if you're not saved. Draw close to him, Christian friend, that he may know that you love him with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. Oh, come and let us adore him.